All righty. If you guys got sufficient hugs and handshakes and stuff, uh, hopefully that'll tide you over for a while. You can go ahead and make your way to your seat there. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. I do uh, just want to mention that um, if you have put your faith in Christ recently and haven't yet taken the important step of believer's baptism, there's a class next Sunday morning, our baptism class, that will explain that to you. We encourage everyone who considers themselves a follower of Jesus to uh, go public with that, wear that badge of Christian discipleship, and uh, be baptized. So make a note of that, if you will. How you doing today? Good? Ready to dive into the Word? Get to work? So go to Matthew chapter 5, if you will. And um, yeah, in this series, we are in essence sitting at the feet of the greatest teacher of them all, aren't we? And we're listening to the greatest sermon of them all, the Sermon on the Mount. If you know me, you know that I'm a sermon junkie. And uh, I know that's kind of weird. It's just how I am. So deal with it. I just love listening to sermons. My iPod does have some songs on it, but it's mostly chock full of uh, podcasts and sermon downloads from guys like Tim Keller and Francis Chan and John MacArthur and John, John Piper and Mark Driscoll and... Matt Chandler, and all of those guys who love Jesus and love his gospel. But it occurred to me, those are just guys. And they wouldn't have much at all to say if they hadn't poured over the teachings of guys like Luke and Paul and John and James and Matthew. But really, those guys wouldn't have a whole lot to say either if they hadn't sat at the feet of the master teacher, Jesus Christ. Because it all comes from Jesus. And so... We are privileged to be studying the words of the Master this morning in his famous Sermon on the Mount. Kind of get us started, you need to know there were two realities in Jesus' day that we need to understand because together they form the backdrop for this sermon recorded in Matthew chapter 5. One was Jewish religion and the other was Roman rule. Together those two realities dominated the lives of the people of that day and they really placed heavy burdens upon them, heavy yokes One a religious yoke and the other a political yoke. On the religious side of things, the brand of Judaism, the Jewish religion that was being practiced, was very focused on external compliance to a set of rules. Religious rule keeping. It was all about doing the right things, behaving the right ways. It was a heavy, heavy load for the people to bear. And they struggled under that weight. Added to that was the burden of the occupation of Israel by the Roman Empire with its oppressive rulers, its excessive taxes, and the intimidating soldiers who were walking around town in their armor. These were heavy yokes, and they weighed the people down and and left the people longing for relief. Giving them hope, though, were the ancient promises that they had of a deliverer, a Messiah, who would come and usher in a new kingdom. And by the first century, Messiah fever was running high. Already, several would-be messiahs had appeared on the scene seeking to ignite revolution and overthrow the Romans, but each uprising had been crushed by the powerful Roman machine. And so the beleaguered Jewish people continued longing for their messiah, for their deliverance. Enter Jesus. Now, you recall that his cousin John had announced his coming, his arrival, and so the crowd started to flock to Jesus, wondering if this young upstart would lead them to the promised land. And so right at the outset of Jesus' ministry, he began to describe his kingdom. 
um, what it would be like, who would be in it, what were the blessings that would be afforded to its citizens. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is really all about. And Jesus began that sermon by saying this in Matthew 5, beginning at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And we call that what? The Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. Do you know, for us here in the 21st century, reading these words, we can easily kind of sentimentalize the Beatitudes. To us, they might sound like sweet little sayings that you might put on your refrigerator or on a plaque and hang in your hallway. But for the people who were actually there, who heard Jesus that day, these words were probably more like shocking to them or unnerving, or maybe even disappointing. Why? Well, think about it. The people who were steeped in this performance-based religion would likely have kind of recoiled at Jesus' emphasis on the internal attitudes of the heart as opposed to their behaviors. And the people who were foaming at the mouth, wanting political revolution, would likely have heard these words and looked at each other and said, say what? <laughs> where's, the, where's the bravado? Where's the vision for getting out from under this oppressive Roman rule? This is no way to stir up the fires of revolution. Poor in spirit, meek, merciful, peacemakers? What's that all about? This is not what we expected to hear from a man who promises us a new kingdom. And so these beatitudes would most likely not have ended up on wall plaques in those days. Jesus, of course, would not be deterred. He continued to promote his kingdom, his upside-down, stealth kingdom, this kingdom that would first rule in the hearts of people before changing their behavior, and a kingdom that was decidedly non-political, not of this world, and yet has the power to influence people and culture far beyond what even any dictator could ever hope to accomplish. Well, today we're going to explore a few more of these Beatitudes, and uh, you can pull the study guide out of your worship folder. I put a lot of information on there. I'm not going to be able to touch on every little point, but I'm hoping you can uh, review them later. I want you to think of the Beatitudes as the Magna Carta of the kingdom of Christ, kind of these foundational principles upon which the kingdom of God would be constructed. As I've studied them in depth, here's a few, here are a few things I've come to understand about these Beatitudes. One, they are pronouncements of blessing. They describe the happy, blessed, fortunate state of those who find themselves in Christ's kingdom. Second, they're countercultural. They go against the grain, both then and now. They go against the grain of prevailing thought of conventional wisdom. They challenge much of what people just assumed is true. Third, these are the effects of grace. I really believe this. And what I mean by that is that I don't believe you can work these traits up on your own. These are qualities that are produced by God in the hearts of people. I think if you read them as a list of action steps or like this to-do list, I think you misread the Beatitudes. Fourth, they are evidences of salvation. So get this now. These are not rules to keep in order to be accepted by God. These are qualities of those present in the lives of those who already have the salvation of God. This is not a stairway to heaven. This is a portrait of people who are already on their way to heaven. 
Fifth, they're progressive. Many scholars see a natural flow of thought in these Beatitudes, a logical sequence in how Jesus laid them out, and I, I think they're right. We're going to see if we can discover that. And then number six, they reflect the heart of Jesus. Like all of the scriptures, the Beatitudes were meant to point us to Jesus. He's the primary example of these things, the model and the focus of the Beatitudes. And we'll come back to that. Well, last weekend we explored the very first one, which I told you I believe is foundational to all the others. And if you remember, let's say it together, all right? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the patokos, remember that? Those who are spiritually bankrupt and know it, they've got nothing to offer God. They're blessed because God meets those people and fills them up with himself. And I've laid out kind of a summary of that one. You can look over that. But let's go to the next beatitude this morning. And it, it goes like this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. Again, at first glance, this can sound kind of strange. Happy are the sad. <laughs> Blessed are the brokenhearted? Really? This runs counter to conventional thinking. The world says, blessed are the tough, the hardened, the indifferent. Blessed are those people who don't let things get to them. There's even a brand of Christianity, I think, that seems to say that Christians should always be upbeat and kind of giddy, never downcast. You ever had anybody tell you, don't be sad? Jesus is not happy if you're sad. You know... If you're a follower of Jesus and you lose a child or lose your spouse or go through a divorce or lose your job or get a bad medical report, it's okay to be sad. It's not unspiritual to mourn. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. But we do need to ask, what kind of mourning, what kind of sorrow did Jesus have in mind here? Is this a reference to general mourning in general or did he have something more specific in mind? The Greek language actually had Nine words for sadness. And here, Jesus chooses the most intense, fervent one of those words. It was a word that meant severe grief, deep sorrow, bereavement over loss. So Jesus could be saying here that those who are mourning the loss of a loved one will be comforted one day. And because of his promise of resurrection, that's true, right? For those who are in Christ, there's the glorious promise that we will be reunited one day with our loved ones who knew Christ. He could be saying that. But most scholars believe that the context leads us to believe that the primary sorrow that Jesus had in mind was sorrow over sin. Mourning over sin and the effects and consequences of sin. They see a progression here. First, the effect of God's grace working in someone's heart is that they see their spiritual bankruptcy and complete helplessness before God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then as a result of that, they, they begin to mourn over their sinful condition, the sinfulness of their hearts, their tendency to go their own way and turn away from God. And I agree with that. I believe you could read this beatitude like this. Blessed are those who are sensitive to sin and broken over it. Blessed are those who are broken over sin. Now, if you're here today and you're not yet a believer, not yet a Christian, this must happen in you for you to become a Christian. You must see yourself as having nothing at all to offer God 
You come empty-handed to God, and you must see your sin for what it is, an affront to a holy God and the reason that Jesus had to die. As the chorus from one old song says, Where are the nails that nailed him there as he died in deep despair? Where's the hammer that drove those nails as God rent the holy veil? Where's the spear that pierced his side when our Lord was crucified? Oh, my friend, please understand, it's in your hands. It's your sin and my sin that, in effect, nailed Jesus to the cross, right? He died for sins, not his own, but our sins. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, I don't think this sense of hating sin is ever supposed to go away. Because of grace and because of Christ's righteousness being given to you, your sin doesn't have to devastate you. It doesn't have to paralyze you like maybe it once did. But if you lose your sensitivity to sin, that's not a good thing. Paul, at the end of his life, said, I'm the chief of sinners. He retained that sensitivity to sin. If you find yourself laughing at sin, denying sin, rationalizing sin, excusing sin, you need to see that as evidence that, that you need God to sensitize your heart once again to his holiness. True repentance would mean seeing my sin and others' sin, not from my point of view, but from God's point of view. Now, I've been told that I give the impression in my life that I have it all together and that I don't struggle much. And you need to know that's not true. I'm sorry if I do that. There are some areas that I think I have together okay, and then there are others that I really do struggle with. So confession time from Pastor Steve this morning, okay, as we talk about mourning over sin. Like most guys, I have an ongoing battle in my heart with lust. I take some comfort in the fact that I battle it to fight I want purity in my life, but there have been more times than I care to admit where I have given in to the lust of the eyes. I remember one time when I was traveling and I landed in a hotel room late at night after a long, long flight, and I made the mistake of turning on the television before going down for the night. And for years, we only had, you know, basic network channels in our home or maybe basic cable but all of a sudden in that hotel room, I discovered that there were actually hundreds of channels that you could watch. What happened is that I got curious about what was going on in that box. And my curiosity led me to explore it. And my exploration led me to watch something that was so riveting and so appealing to my flesh that I could not bring myself to change the channel. And I watched and I watched and I watched and then finally I got disgusted with myself to the point where I finally turned it off and I remember afterwards feeling so dirty, so polluted, so contaminated. I felt horrible. I didn't sleep well that night. I knew I had a long drive the next day to get to my destination. On that drive, me and the Lord talked. Actually, he talked and I listened. For two hours, I grieved over my sin. I mourned. I really did. I wept sorrowful tears, then angry tears. I saw Jesus in my mind's eye, nailed to a cross, suffering and bleeding for my sins. I saw my desire for visual pleasure 
for the heart idolatry that it was. I mourn the loss of innocence and the loss of spiritual appetite for the things of God. I grieved over my sin on that trip to the point that my insides hurt. On that drive, the Lord reminded me of David's sin and his brokenness over his sin and the psalm that he wrote in penitence, Psalm 51. And I had memorized that psalm and I went through it in my, in my mind. Oh God, my sin is ever before me. I felt like Isaiah did when he saw his sin in light of God's holiness. I felt broken. I felt undone. I was in anguish over my sin. And some of you might hear that and think, well, what's the big deal? I mean, you didn't commit adultery, did you? You didn't sleep with anybody. Take it, you know, take it easy on yourself. We all mess up. God will forgive you. And yes, thankfully, because of the cross of Christ and the blood of Christ, he did forgive me. But this notion that sin is no big deal, that everybody messes up now and then, there's a lot worse things you could have done, get over it, move on. None of those thoughts brought me much comfort as I was driving down the road one day, but you know, that day, but you know what did? What brought me comfort was seeing my sin as wicked idolatry, owning it in all of its ugliness, throwing myself on God's mercy in Christ once again. That brought me that calm sense of assurance that I was cleansed and forgiven by God. Remember I called my wife up and told her you know, what I had done because I, I don't want to keep my sin secret because long, as long as sin remains covered up, it remains unconquered, right? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. James said it this way, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's what I was that day. Be wretched and mourn. There it is. And weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. It's wonderful, isn't it? It's a wonderful promise promise of forgiveness, the comfort of forgiveness. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Last night after I shared with the Saturday night crowd, I had a guy email me saying, hey, you know what, Steve? I was so encouraged by your sin. <laughs> really? I'm not sure how to feel about that, but all right. All right, let's look at this next beatitude. And I wish I had time to unpack this fully. I don't. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And then what? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Even unbelievers know that one. Blessed are the completely surrendered to God. Again, I think this would have been perplexing to the people. Meek? Seriously? <laughs> You're going to overthrow the world's most powerful empire by being meek and raising up an army of meek people? This goes against conventional thinking. The kingdom of this world declares, blessed are the dominant, <laughs> those who assert their power. Blessed are the stubbornly rebellious who make their own way in this world. And again, the principles of this world often work in this world, don't they? Jesus wasn't denying that. This world values dominating strength and powerful and, and throwing your weight around and being seen as powerful. Isn't that what North Korea is all about right now? We want to be respected as a powerful entity. 
But Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. It has a different constitution, different bylaws, and different operating principles. It's a countercultural kingdom. And in the kingdom of Christ, he said, what wins the day is meekness. Now, we hear the word meekness, and we often think what? Weakness or wimpiness. But that's not the definition. The word means yieldedness, submission, like a willing submission, gentleness, and power under control. That's interesting. It's not that you don't have any power. It's that it's harnessed. It's reined in. In the Greek language, this was the word used to describe a wild animal like a wild colt that had been tamed or domesticated, whose will had been broken and had become docile and gentle. I remember when Shirley, Shirley and I were riding horses on the beach. I told you about this about a month or so ago. The horse that I was on, I could tell that horse was itching to run. And I had the reins, and I was holding it. But if I had let go for a moment, that horse would have taken off like a scalded cat and left everybody else in the dust. But it was interesting. Just one jerk on the reins, he'd been trained, made him stop dead in his tracks. That's what this word is all about. This energy, this power contained, tamed, under control. There are some countries where this trade, I think, is more of the norm than it is here. We had some Asian boys stay with us a couple of months ago. And I saw this inclination in them, this meekness. Here, in the U.S., meekness is often viewed, as I said, as wimpiness. We're told to, to what? Stand up for our rights. And get all mad and upset if our rights are being threatened. Even out on the highway, yielding to other people makes us kind of cringe, right? This is my lane to drive in. Get your own lane. But in Jesus' kingdom, meekness is highly esteemed. Meekness is valued. The blessed are those who are completely surrendered to God. That's the blank there. Who yield their rights to God. And Jesus probably had Psalm 37 in mind when he spoke this. That psalm reads in part like this, verse 7. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. That's where he got it. He was quoting the Old Testament. He often did. This passage gives us a picture of meekness. It's being still before the Lord. It's waiting patiently for God. It's refraining from anger, not fretting and getting all worried and upset over things, but waiting for the Lord. Meekness arises from a strong confidence that God is in control. He's going to be faithful to do what he promised to do. He's going to do it in his way and in his time. And as a result, there's this kind of patient yieldedness rising up in the hearts of those who know that God. We see this in Bible characters, this meekness. We see it in Abraham when he deferred to Lot. Remember, the land was available, and Abraham said to his nephew, you know what, you choose the best land, and then I'll defer to you, I'll choose the other. We see it in the life of Joseph who, when he became prime minister in Egypt, and he could have used his powerful position, couldn't he, to avenge himself on his brothers who had sold him into slavery, but he didn't. We see it in the life of David, who when that you know, insane king, Saul, was after him, wanted to 
kill him. David stumbled upon Saul a couple of times when he was in a very vulnerable position. (laughs) Once when he was sleeping, and David's cohort said, Look, God's delivered this deranged king into your hand. Lop his head off. Claim your throne. And David said, I can't touch God's anointed. Cut off a little bit of his robe just so Saul would knew he'd been there. (laughs) But he restrained himself. Power under control. Meekness. Took my son to watch uh, the movie 42 the other night. The story of Jackie Robinson. And the scene when Jackie is in the office of the owner of the Brooklyn Dodgers, Branch Rickey, and Ricky is describing for him the abuse that Jackie Robinson was likely to receive by being the first black man to ever wear a major league uniform. Jackie Robinson heard that and he looked at at, uh, Branch Ricky and he asked, well, are you looking for someone with the guts to fight back? And Ricky said, no, I'm looking for someone with the guts to not fight back. Power under control. Meekness. Meekness. You know, when you see someone who's angry all the time because they always feel like they're getting a raw deal and their rights are being violated, you're seeing someone who needs a good dose of meekness. When you see someone or meet someone who feels entitled to things all the time, you know, I got a right. I got a right to have this or that. I got a right to have a a wife who respects me or a husband who loves me. I got a right to this and a right to that. And they perceive that their rights are always being violated and they're always angry and upset and they carry a grudge and carry a chip on their shoulder, that person needs a good dose of meekness. Pray for them. They need God's grace poured into their life so they realize they're actually getting way more than they deserve. (laughs) The meek, it says, are blessed because they will inherit the earth. I believe that's a way of restating that promise in Psalm 37. Inherit means you'll receive the portion that is coming to you, that is allotted to you. I think what it's saying is Jesus' kingdom is going to be fully manifested on earth one day, right? King Jesus here on the earth. And those who will be co-reigning with him are the ones who are submitted to his rule now, surrendered to him now, will reign with him later. It's a beautiful promise. So, blessed are the poor in spirit, see the flow now, who realize their spiritual bankruptcy and total dependence upon God. Seeing that, they begin to mourn over their sinful condition of their hearts, grieve over what their sin did to Jesus. That leads them to fully surrender their lives, to yield their lives to God. And then the next one, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the spiritually hungry. And I'm going to let you read through that because i got too much to say and, and there's a lot there. Let me just say two things about this one. First, this is what I've been talking about for months. This is the people who live righteously, not because they have to, but because they want to. You see that? They hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's not this duty or obligation, you know, my church is telling me I have to be good, so I'm trying to be good, or my parents, or whatever, you know, it's this uh, religious obligation. No, this is something that's churning up from the inside. I want this. I'm hungering. I'm thirsting for righteousness. Second thing I want to point out is that I don't think this desire for righteousness starts to diminish just because you get saved and receive the righteousness of Christ. If you know someone, or maybe you've said this, you know, well, I'm saved, you know, I got the righteousness of Jesus, I can live however I want now, I mean, it works out great, I love to sin, Jesus loves to forgive, we make a great match. (laughs) 
I think the person who thinks that way doesn't get the gospel. Theologians say it like this. Imputed righteousness always leads to a desire for practical righteousness in your lifestyle. Those who have truly been justified long to be fully sanctified. It's the nature of true salvation. Oh, there's a lot more I could say there. But let's go on. The fifth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Or said another way, blessed are those who are active in their compassion. They're actively compassionate. And again, there's a progression here. This beatitude and the three that follow it seem to flow out of the one we just talked about, hungering for righteousness. In fact, they picture that righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What does that mean, Jesus? Well, showing mercy, being pure in heart, being a peacemaker, being willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. He's painting a portrait of a righteous life. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. Now, in this world so often, it's rewritten to read like this. Blessed are those who care just enough to get noticed. Or blessed are those who help the people who deserve to be helped. And so Jesus, again, is going counterculture here, and he declares the blessing of God to be upon those who truly show mercy to other people, regardless of their supposed worthiness or ability to repay or give something back. The word here describes a heart-level concern that begs to be expressed. It's both the desire of the heart and the activity that flows out of that desire. It's It's a compassion that acts, that moves towards people. Blessed are the merciful. Now, in the Bible, this concept of mercy is often linked with other concepts. For example, mercy is often related to forgiveness, right? God had mercy on us. The way he demonstrated that was his forgiveness of our sins. To have mercy on someone is to forgive them when they wrong us. Mercy is also uh, related to withholding judgment from someone. It's also related to love. Part of loving someone is having mercy on them. It's also related, of course, to having compassion on people, cultivating a heart that sympathizes and empathizes with people who are struggling and then acts to meet those needs. Mercy, then, is an expression of God's righteous character. He's a merciful God. We could say it like this. Blessed are those who see needs and are moved to act like God did. And there's lots of examples of this in Scripture. Maybe the most famous one would be the Good Samaritan. Didn't he have mercy? He showed mercy by getting personally involved in a very difficult situation, a very dangerous situation, putting himself out there to help a guy who'd just been mugged. I think of Stephen, the deacon who was being stoned to death for declaring his belief in Christ. And while the rocks were pummeling his body, instead of seeking revenge upon his killers, what did he say? Echoes of the cross, remember? Father, forgive him. Forgive him, that's mercy. I mean, when the stones are cracking against your skull and you're saying forgive them, that's an otherworldly kind of mercy and forgiveness, isn't it? That takes supernatural strength. 
I want to talk about forgiveness for a moment because I think this is where the rubber meets the road for so many people. Right now, as I think about it, I know of a situation where a daughter is refusing to forgive her father, where a wife is struggling to forgive her ex-husband, where a parent's having a hard time forgiving a son, where a daughter-in-law refuses to forgive her husband's parents. In fact, I know of dozens of situations where someone has been hurt or wounded by someone else but just cannot find it in their heart to forgive them. In the past two weeks, I've asked four different people to forgive me for hurting them, for offending them, and I hope and pray God gives them his mercy so they would forgive me and release me from my offenses. So this issue of mercy that forgives hits us right down where we live, doesn't it? You know, some of Jesus' strongest warnings were reserved for people who refused to forgive. My own conviction is this. Jesus believed that if someone is perpetually unwilling to forgive people who've sinned against them, they give evidence that perhaps they haven't actually received God's forgiveness for all of their many sins and offenses. James 2.13 says, Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Do we understand this? It's not that we earn God's mercy by being merciful to others. We know that. It's that we who have experienced God's mercy in forgiving us cannot help but forgive people who've sinned against us. It's an evidence of grace. It's like I said to a person just the other day who had been deeply hurt by another person. I said, you know what? Jesus died for their sins too, not just yours. He suffered and bled and died for their sins. Recently, I've read several stories about this kind of mercy that forgives. One was of a pastor whose son had been murdered. And he went to the prison to visit the man who'd murdered his son to tell him that he forgave him and to share the mercy of God, the, the gospel of God's mercy with that man. That's another level, isn't it? I read a book a few months ago about a pastor's daughter who forgave the man in their church who wreaked havoc on their family, bombed their house, had her mother shot, and so harassed her father that it drove him right out of the ministry. The book's called The Devil in the Seventh Pew. Never mind. Never mind. And I saw on YouTube, I saw the video on Dr. Phil of her and that perpetrator together on a stage and her looking at the man and said, I forgive you for what you did because Jesus is in my life and he's forgiven me of so much. That kind of forgiveness has supernatural origins, wouldn't you agree? It takes God's mercy in us to empower us to forgive people who've wounded us. I think repentance in this area would, would, would be seeing that I'm undeserving of God's mercy. I'm grateful to have received it. Now I see myself as a conduit for his mercy to other people. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible says, His mercies are new every morning. Don't you love that verse? His mercies are new every morning. But I got to thinking about this. If his mercies are renewed to me every morning, maybe my mercies to others need to be renewed every morning. Sometimes we get this idea that well, I thought I forgave him back in 1986, but I still have bad thoughts and feelings about him when I think about it. Well, forgiving and forgetting are not equivalent. 
Only God has the ability to erase his memory and put our sins in the sea of forgetfulness. We're constructed differently. I think it's a promise you make every day when you get up. My mercies are new this morning. I will not you know, rehearse that whole wounded scenario in my mind and get myself all worked up all over again. Hold it against that person again. His mercies to me are new every morning. And his mercies in me and through me need to be renewed every morning to the people who have hurt and offended me in my life. That's a, that's a powerful thought, isn't it? Mercy's new every morning. I think that best reflects the gospel that we say we believe. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy from God. Even more mercy from God. And I think from others, too. You know, you kind of reap what you sow in this life, right? Well, let me say one last thing about these Beatitudes. I mentioned it earlier. I believe they reflect Jesus. They point to Jesus. I'm so convinced of this. Just think about the ones we looked at today. Blessed are those who mourn, who are broken over sin. Was Jesus broken and mourning over sin? Yeah, not his own. He was broken and mourning over the sins of others, over the sins of the world. He was a man of sorrows, it says, acquainted with grief. When he was wearing the sins of the world, when he was in the garden, oh yeah, he was mourning over sin. The sins of others. Blessed are the meek. Was Jesus meek? He described himself as meek and lowly. Think about power under control, that definition of meekness. I just think about when Jesus was standing before Pilate. And Pilate looked at Jesus and said, don't you know I have the power to have you executed? To the second person of the Holy Trinity, who I wonder if he was thinking, yeah, I have the power to reduce you to a little pile of ashes right now with a word. (laughs) But he didn't do it. Power under control. Or when he was in the garden and Peter had drawn his sword and lopped off that guy's ear, remember, and Jesus healed his ear, and Peter, put your sword away. Don't you know that Anytime I want to, I could call and have 12 legions of angels, that's 72,000 angels, come and rescue me and whisk me away. Don't you know I could do that, Peter? But he didn't. Power under control. Jesus epitomized that beatitude. Blessed are the meek. How about, did Jesus hunger and thirst for righteousness? (laughs) Think about it. Think about the passion of Jesus to defend the righteousness of his father. Think about him going into the temple that one day where they turned it into a marketplace, making a whip, driving out the money changers, and his disciples went, whoa! Like the scripture says, zeal for thine house has eaten him up. Zealous for righteousness, fulfilled the law, lived the righteous life, then died in order to make his righteousness available to us as a gift. Yeah, I would say he hungered and thirsted for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Did Jesus show mercy to the woman at the well, to others? Yeah, like no one you've ever seen or known. Jesus showed mercy. Jesus epitomized the Beatitudes in every way. And because of that, he is the ultimately blessed, fortunate, happy one, Jesus Well, let me summarize it. Blessed are those who are broken over sin. Blessed are those who are completely surrendered to God. Blessed are the spiritually hungry who long for righteousness. And blessed are those who show compassion to those who don't deserve it and forgive as they've been forgiven. These are the ones who are blessed, happy, fortunate, favored citizens of the kingdom.
These Beatitudes bring so many things in our lives to the surface, don't they? I mean, how many of you, something in here, like, hit you where you live? Could I see your hands? I mean, something in there, you know, claiming rights, getting all angry, confessing sins to others, um, forgiving, you know, being hungry for other things other than righteousness, you know, cultivating other appetites, but not that one. I bold-faced the, the evidences of need on your outline so you could go through those and the Spirit could point out maybe particular areas of your life. But I want to park for a moment on forgiveness because this is a huge issue. So many believers I know are, are held back in their spiritual walk because they're mad. <laughs> they're angry, they've been wounded, they've been hurt, and they're resentful, they carry grudges. They walk around with a black cloud over their head because there's someone that has hurt and offended them and they have not been able or wanted even to forgive. It's huge. And what I felt compelled to say to all of us today is you don't have to walk out of here with still carrying that because of the mercy of Christ to you. Sometimes Jesus just reaches into someone's heart and extracts it. I've had people tell me that. It was gone. I woke up that morning angry like usual. By the end of the day, it was gone. Jesus lifted it. He extracted it, pulled it right out of their heart. Other times, it's more of a process. Mercy's new every morning, every morning, every morning, forgiving. Would you bow your heads with me and think about these questions? Is there someone in your life whom you've hurt, whom you've wounded, you've offended. You can see it in their face. It, they avoid you. Their emails drip with sarcasm. I don't know, but you know, you've hurt them. What would Jesus have you to do to rectify that situation? Or is there someone in your life that's hurt you? that's wounded you, maybe yesterday, maybe last week, maybe 10 years ago, maybe 50 years ago. You don't have to carry that anymore. You don't. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Our prayer partners are going to be up here ready, willing, and available to pray with you about whatever the Holy Spirit's put his finger on that we've talked about this morning, any of them. In particular, this matter of mercy and forgiveness. Maybe you can't find it in your heart to forgive someone. Come, acknowledge that need. This is part of being poor in spirit, by the way. It's humbling yourself, saying, I don't have it in me to forgive them. I need something beyond myself. And come and be prayed with. Also, I'm going to stand up here because I've realized that there are people who I've hurt, I've wounded, I've offended. I may not even know that I did by something I said or did or something I didn't say or didn't do that I should have and I, so I'm going to stand up here and maybe you want to come to me and let me know that I've hurt you and we can get on a path to figuring that out and reconciling that or you feel like you need to ask my forgiveness for some reason or Maybe I can be a stand-in for a spiritual authority figure in your life who hurt you or wounded you. A, a pastor, a priest, a church. And you've been wounded by them. 
And they're not here. They're not around. But maybe I could stand in for them this morning. And you could come and express that hurt to me. And I'll speak to you the words that God gives me for you. So let's stand together. And let's let God work in our hearts these next few moments. And let's respond as he would want us to. Okay.